In the 1920s, the Fifth National Bank and the Third National Bank came together to form one of the largest consumer banks in the U.S. Headquartered in Cincinnati, the combined Fifth Third Bank grew into a Fortune 500 company, a multi-service financial institution that's now pioneering new ideas about workplace and wellness, the major topics of this show. On this episode, we're on location in Cincinnati, where a roundtable shares Fifth Third Bank's approach to real estate design and operations with insights into its innovative mindset. We've had very good success with people coming back to the office. We started early and we got people back early and I think that really helped our momentum. That's Thomas Neltner, the bank's head of enterprise work services and its real estate strategy leader. Thomas joins us with leaders from other relevant specialties, including the bank's director of workplace design, Valerie Garrett. Space is a proxy for culture. And so you can't extricate the two from one another. We also have the bank's wellness lead, Maureen Ballant, senior vice president and director of benefits. I'm all about movement, light, and socializing. That just is mentally fulfilling to most people. And to add wider context, we're also joined by CBRE's Todd Pardon, Managing Director of Global Workplace Solutions, a 25-year veteran based in Michigan who has advised Fifth Third and other clients in the banking sector. Different financial institutions are in different arcs of their rationalization of all of the workplace experience changes that we've seen over the past several years. Coming up, insights into those changes at Fifth Third Bank, a century-old institution that's doing anything but painting by the numbers when it comes to workplace and wellness. I'm Spencer Levy, and that's right now on The Weekly Take. Welcome to The Weekly Take, and we are here with our friends from Fifth Third Bank, the 12th largest bank in the United States. And we're going to talk about Fifth Third's real estate strategy. We're going to talk about workplace. We're going to talk about wellness. And to help us with today's conversation, we are joined by Thomas Neltner. Thomas, great to see you. Good to see you. We're also joined by Maureen Belent. Maureen, welcome. Great, thank you. Valerie Garrett. Thank you, Spencer. And then our own Todd Pardon. Todd, thanks for joining the show. Thank you. So to begin, let's start with the easy one. Thomas, tell me, are people coming back? They are coming back. We've had very good success with people coming back um, to the office. We started early, and we got people back early, and I think that really helped our momentum. And uh, we've had people back for almost a year, so it's been great. And it is a good thing to have. It's a good mojo, and it's good to have people back in the excitement and the collaboration thing. So, Valerie, since you are Director of Workplace Design, uh, the workplace isn't just the four walls where you're working these days. It actually includes the parking lot. It includes the, the bank branches. In the same vein of people coming back, what are you doing to try to make people want to come back to the office? Hmm. Well, it's a little more enduring than a post-pandemic conversation, which I'm very pleased and proud to say. When people ask me how you future-proof the workplace, my answer has always been that you design toward universal basic human need. 
So this is things like collaboration, connection. And so we design based on those kinds of things. Um, we have a very, uh, I'll say, city planning focused set of principles that we design with. Those are enduring principles that Kevin Lynch uh, published in 1960. And they were very quickly understood as a seminal work in city planning. And it was also recognized that those things were um, good things to plan around for interior space as well. And so that's our foundation. And then we look at things like variety, choice, flexibility. How do we ensure that all of the different workplace behaviors you engage in all through the day are accommodated and supported in the work environment? But also, as we started to bring people back, we got questions from leaders in the organization about were we ready to do that? Was the office environment ready? And we did some studies and said, um, yes, and we don't need to change a thing we're ready. People can come back, they can spread out. There are places where they can come together and stay spread out enough that it's safe. Um, and so we've had places since the beginning of the pandemic, I would say just about. We have a very flexible space. We had just opened what we call the forum and it was a place where this person could bring 15 people together in a big room and do an ideation session using some design thinking tools for us to be able to stay on mission. That's super cool. And I think that that's one word you didn't use was cool because, you know, people say, oh, it's variety, it's functional, it's safe. And these are all the things that are worth thinking about. But I must add, I walked through the forum and it is cool. And it, it is pretty cool, isn't it? You see that? <laughs> don't, don't be afraid to say that. You know, add that to the adjectives. Add that to the adjectives. We specialize in doing extraordinary things with ordinary materials. It's what we're good at in human-centered design. So that's what you experienced when you came through this space. Terrific. Uh, so, Todd, you've been working with the bank for a while, but you've also worked on other accounts like it. What do you think is the distinguishing characteristic of how Fifth Third's approaching workplace versus, say, some of our other accounts? Well, I think different financial institutions are in different arcs of their rationalization of um, all of the workplace experience changes that we've seen over the past several years. Valerie and I were talking yesterday about, you know, one of the things I really appreciate about Fifth Third is I think they were very early to grab onto the experience and the importance of that with the employees. It probably enabled and powered you through the COVID time period because you were already well-equipped for some of those changes. I think um, a, a lot of the financial institutions that were on that same arc fared very, very well. And in fact, this propelled them and accelerated their business plans and their leading um, the race a little bit. Um, but I also think um, we've seen a dramatic shift in just the expectation of employees. Everybody's been very conscious of what is it like to work in an environment? What is it like for wellness in an environment? The past several years have been a giant education. And so I think we're seeing our clients really focus on that elevated expectation as they do return to the office and have a higher level for themselves. So. Let's now turn uh, to you, Maureen, to talk about wellness in the context of workplace design, because it's not just things you do for people under the wellness banner. It's the way you design the space. Talk about how the two come together. So I love the new space. I love the new atrium. It's fabulous in the fact that it's beautiful, and it's also cool, fun, and Using the space, we have a group that's getting together on a regular basis talking about how do we 
make it more fun or more interesting or different than what it was before the pandemic. So we have tunes on Tuesday. So there's a musician in the atrium just having tunes, right? That's something we never had before. But it also helps us to promote other things that we're doing. So people are curious, like, what's going to happen next? We had a bale of hay in the lobby the other day where you could get selfies taken. And we're really building upon that from a wellness standpoint. So we use the atrium now as a place to catch people's eye on wellness activities. So we had a big table with balloons, advertising the mammography van is outside at Fountain Square. We have appointments available, sign up. We had a sellout crowd. We had flu shots, sellout crowd. We've never had a sellout crowd before. Biometric screenings, somebody's taking your blood right around Halloween, that's a little scary, right? Um, And sellout crowd again. I don't know if it's because the space is so welcoming or easy to have those on tight events so people are walking in that would have never seen us before maybe in a conference room. Yeah, I'll riff on that for a moment if I could, Spencer. Maureen's talking about wellness. She's also talking about culture. And space is a proxy for culture. And so you can't extricate the two from one another. Um, When you activate space, I mean, space is both a catalyst and a supporter of culture, but then when you come behind a completed space and you activate it that way, you're perpetuating something really positive for people. And so I think what we're talking about here is is there's a huge cultural element to this that you just can't deny. And there's an old expression that uh, culture beat strategy is a, is a, I think that's the terminology. Culture eats strategy for, for breakfast. Yes. There we go. There's a reason why Drucker said that. I mean, yeah. it's, it's, it's immensely powerful. Yeah, and I think to add to that, Spencer, uh, just one other comment to the wellness pieces, and you'll see this when we talk about some of our branches and our next gen, which we'll get to in a minute, which is environment around our customers and employees, but the transparency. I mean, there's a reason why the entire front of this building is glass. There's a reason why natural light on every single floor is so bright, almost like you're working outside. So very, very much like a lot of companies have done, but we believe that health and wellness, a lot about bringing that natural light in and having that free flow of people moving around the floor, moving about the campus and that mobile worker. We've talked about that. So I would add that to the wellness And daylight and movement just brightens your day, right? You, You just have to feel better, more energized, and then sitting at your desk dark lights, just typing by yourself if you're out and about. Even if you're just going to the copy machine, I've learned, or a printer, they've put them intentionally two on a floor. So you can't just get up and take seven steps. You have to walk. And it helps us with not using as much paper as well. But there's actually steps and socialization that happens when you go to print something that maybe wouldn't have happened before. But I'm all about movement, light, and socializing, that just is mentally fulfilling to most people. I won't say all, but most. It's an innovation catalyst Mm -hmm. too, right? Like innovation 101 is serendipitous encounters tend to be a catalyst for innovation. So if I get up and I see somebody as I'm moving about that I wouldn't have otherwise seen, oh, Maureen, that thing we were talking about last week, let's connect on that. And suddenly you have this impromptu conversation that is, by the way, a meeting of sorts. So it's one of these behaviors that we engage in every day that if you're sitting in one place for eight hours and it's a desk, and first of all, you're going to hit the diminishing returns point pretty quickly (laughs) that way because it's not a productive way to work 
for that long. One of my favorite studies uh, for workplace was published, in, it's, it's old now, it was published in 2014 in Fast Company. And an organization had studied its top 10% of like high performers. So they're top 10% of producers. And what they found is for every 47 minutes of what we would think of conventionally as work, those people were spending 17 to 19 minutes doing other things. Maybe they were planning their next vacation. Maybe they were on social media. Maybe they were going to get coffee, any number of things. Maybe they were taking a break and reading a book, like literally a, you know, something for pleasure. And when you do the math, their top performers only did conventional work for about six hours a day. And these are, again, the top performers. What that tells me is all those other things are big contributors to productivity. They're contributors to work. So you take a block of time and you're not doing one thing for the whole day. How long has it been since we did one thing all day long? It's been decades since that was the reality. To summarize what you were suggesting, Valerie, productivity is the most important word in our business. How do you make people not more efficient, but more productive. Productivity drives the top line, efficiency drives cost and other things like that. And it's different depending upon the type of employee you have. So, um, And the type of work they're engaged in on a given day. So Thomas, how do you look at those two concepts, productivity versus efficiency, or do you look at them together? I, I think you look at them together. I then want to go back to efficient. It may be Let's talk about both. Let's talk about efficient of me walking through the atrium or an open environment and being in person and seeing two or three different people that I haven't been able to get a hold of. And it's very efficient because I asked Maureen a question. She answered it. I'm done. It's quick. I didn't leave her a message. I didn't have to call her back. She calls me back. He didn't give me an email again. Again. Sorry. <laughs> and it was serendipitous. One of them was serendipitous. <laughs> so, yes, is that efficient? That's much more efficient, um, at least if I'm here and I'm running into many people. Um, from the productivity standpoint, we talk a lot about productivity. Um, and um, during the pandemic, we may mention that in coming here, the pandemic, I think people pride themselves on they were productive at home. We were so productive, we left the ark. You can do that in a crisis. How you behave in a crisis is different than when there's not a crisis. And I think there's a false sense of, hey, we were so productive, everybody can just work from home. Well, that worked for a time being. I think having people back, um, I believe, feeding off others. And we talk about people wanting to come back to work. I mean, think about how you learn. You learn from observation. Most of your learning comes from observation, whether when you're a kid to see how your father behaved or your mother behaved or your brother didn't behave. And you <laughs> saw that, but you also saw it in the workplace. We have told our people we have an obligation to not only teach our coworkers, learn from our coworkers, and you can't do that sitting at home. You can't do that not being in a room you can't do that in an exchange of ideas and you feed off on each other. Um, and so I think productivity and efficiency are, are linked, but I think being in person and really have an obligation to meet other people and to learn from other people is how we learn. And I think you're going to miss that. If you're not in the office, you're going to miss it. And I think there's going to be a set of people that are going to be behind because they're not in the office. There are some remote jobs, got that. Uh, we can talk about that. But I think people who are in the office are going to learn more they're going to advance their career more, and they're going to be able to teach other people and pass it on. And it's it going to help their emotional and social well-being. Yes. Being around people is important, and having conversations and going to lunch and all of those things, being with people is great for your well-being.
You know, we're talking about productivity, efficiency, face-to-face, and there's another word that's popped up a couple times, which is critical to the whole conversation, and that's communication. In a time where we're talking about flexibility, when I think about what's changed, I often like to think about what hasn't changed as a measure for what has changed. The reality is people have always wanted flexibility. Technology has enabled us, um, but the idea, I mean, any executive who believes that people were in the office five days a week, eight to five before 2020 is probably, there's some delusion there, right? Um, our badge data indicated that that was not real. Um, and I think the need for flexibility has just become absolutely undeniable for leaders. They just cannot ignore the desire for it and the need for it anymore. The message that I've sent to my team is threefold. One is communicate. I don't mandate that anybody be here certain days a week or a certain number of days or certain times, but communicate. The entire conversation around flexibility gets much easier if you're producing and communicating proactively. The second thing is be mindful of your peers. We have a team calendar and I ask the team to forecast a week or two out when you're going to be traveling in the office, out of the office on PTO. There, There are three or four categories that we use. And what I say to them is like, look, Look, if you're looking at the calendar and you have flexibility next week of the days you can be on site and you notice that there's a day that two or three others are going to be on site, pick that day. Otherwise, you're coming in, it's like a mausoleum. There's no energy. You need human hum when you're here to help energize you and help you be productive. And then the third thing, and this, Thomas, you spoke to this a little bit, um, don't be too scarce. It's hard to position you in an organization if you're not communicative and you're never around. So I think there's a way to leverage flexibility and lead in a way that encourages flexibility. And all of that culminates in something that I think is really important, and that's wisdom. The wisdom to know when you need to be on site because it's important. We could have done this podcast on Zoom. I've seen podcasts done remote. You came here because you felt like it was important. I report to Thomas. Thomas likes to see me and I like to see him. We have a lot of creative conflict. I mean, a lot. Sometimes we have actual conflict conflict, but most of the time, most of the time it's creative conflict and it gets very lively. It is wise for me to be on site. And there are days when I come on site just for that meeting because it's important to me to connect with my leadership in that way. And I know it's important to him. Well, well, to go with that, Val- Valerie, I think the other thing we talked about is you cannot replace nonverbal communication. And th- I can look at you sometimes, Valerie, and say, this is not going to work. This is a real conflict. <laughs> this is a real conflict. I can look at Spencer today, and he's telling me, cut it off because you're grab- rambling. Well, so what did I say to you I can't just see that morning. on a conference call. We had a conversation so. just this morning, and I looked at Thomas, and I said, I don't know what your face means right now. <laughs> so I think it's important. You know, we talked about remote. We've talked about being in person. We have to remember that half of our population has been face-to-face with the customer or at their normal desk through the pandemic. We can't forget about that important half of our company never went home. They were there when people needed them the most. And we did a lot of things to help them, you know, buying lunch, special plastic to protect. But in the end... They should be our heroes, right? They were here when we needed them the most. And so we can't forget that when we're talking about being as an on-site or in-person company. Let's go out into the field now, shall we? And let's talk about the branches. 
first of all, how many branches do you have? What's the big picture strategy? And let's get into the real estate. Yeah, so we have 1,080 branches. Um, and um, again, uh, our shift over the last, Spencer, has been shifting to the southeast. Um, the growth is there. The income's there. The activity's there. And I'm talking like places like Charlotte and Raleigh and Greenville, where you see a lot of activity. Florida and Tampa, Orlando, Jacksonville. Over the last four years, we uh, have built over 100 branches in those areas, and we continue to do that. So our shift has been building branches in the southeast. Uh, we subsequently have been doing two and three for ones in other markets where we're oversaturated with branches. So you'll see a swapping out of the Midwest to the southeast. But our next-gen branch is what we call it. I'll let Valerie talk a little bit about it, is we think top of the market out there. Smaller branch, 1,900 square feet, 2,400 square feet, 2,800 square feet. That's down from average of 4,500 to 5,000 square feet. So much smaller footprint um, and really trying to put them in the best areas. We get into that a little bit. But I want to talk about the design a little bit. Will you talk about a little bit of our next-gen design, especially around transparency um, and what we're doing uh, and how we service our customers? The bank believes that design thinking is a strategic tool and that design research using those methods creates a really nice foundation for creating a really good experience. Uh, so we realized a couple of things about five years ago. One was we had an entirely undifferentiated experience. So you could take images, and we've done this for presentations, where images of a half a dozen different banking environments and say, okay, pick out ours, and you can't. Ours could be anybody's and anybody's could be ours at that time. So an, a, a completely undifferentiated experience. And then also the understanding that banking has changed over the last hundred years, but the way we bank has not changed in a hundred plus years. So if you think about like the days of George Bailey, who I understand is a fictional character, obviously, but like that's how banking was done. The idea that you had this all-knowing, all-powerful banker on one side of the desk and these people who needed to borrow money on the other side of the desk, and it was not an equitable experience. So we did a significant amount of research with both customers and our internal teams here that serve our customers. And we asked our customers about their perceptions around banking. And there was a time where the perceptions around banking was pretty negative. So if you think about the last time we had a major market downturn, banking was kind of a culprit. I mean, not kind of, <laughs> they just were. And so the perceptions around banking banks was pretty dismal. Um, what they told us were things like, you have a lot of back of house space and we don't know what you do back there. Translation, we don't necessarily trust that whatever's going on back there is for our benefit. Essentially, what customers told us is we, we want to learn. We want to be empowered. We want to know that what you're doing is actually for our benefit. And we want that transparency that Thomas talked about. And so out of all that research came some insights that gave us essentially the next-gen design that you see in our new branches. Um, we've built about 70 so far throughout the footprint. Um, they're very open. Uh, the feedback that we get from customers is that my favorite is um, it, it, this doesn't feel like a bank, which is a home run for me because one of the major insights was we need to be the unbank. 
Um, customers don't want to walk in and feel like they have felt doing banking for the last hundred years. They want a space that is theirs. And so when a customer comes in and says, this doesn't even feel like a bank, my immediate response is, yes, we did it. And we get that over and over and over again. So for the benefit of our listeners who are not movie buffs, George Bailey was the lead character in Frank Capra's It's a Wonderful Life. Correct. There, I will give you a spoiler, but there is a happy ending in the movie, notwithstanding the travails of George Bailey, but uh, just so people are aware of that. And the other thing that I was thinking about when you said next generation, I was thinking about the new movie Maverick, the new Top Gun oh, yes. picture. And yes. you talked all about next generation fighters. Is, is that what you're building here? That's what we're building, next generation fighters. Branches that look unlike anything else you've seen in the best locations with the best visibility, transparency, and glow. We got this thing called glow. If you look at our branches, especially at, obviously at night, they glow. They stand out. They are unique. And it's really cool. It's cool to see. The feedback we get from employees and customers has just been outstanding. So our new branch design, we're very excited about smaller footprint. But it gives, to Valerie's point, it gives the customer the choice where they want to work. Whether it's at a high-top table, a booth, believe it or not, the booth is the most popular place for people to sit, and you would think they wouldn't be behind closed doors. But the feedback we got from them is that when they're behind closed doors, they may be in trouble. So, or you're trying to sell me. Or you're trying to sell you something. So they like the booth. So they can go to a transaction bar. They can go to a table. Or they can sit on the couch. So mm-hmm. there's a variety of places to service our customers within the branch. And it's mobile. And it's almost that concept when we serve, looked at other retailers, that concierge-type service, which has been outstanding. Yeah. The reality is that we're in an experience economy. We have been for some time. And so we're not being compared to anybody's last best banking experience. We're being compared to their last best experience period. Could be their last best boutique hotel visit, uh, their last best restaurant experience. It could be anything. Let's go back to the concept of smaller. And uh, first of all, I can't help myself, but I will quote a book that I like that I do send to some people. It's called Small is Beautiful. Um, and it's by E.F. Schumacher from the early 1970s. Talks about people wanting less and actually makes them happier. Yes. Mm-hmm. Are we going back to the future, so to speak, of what banking, I bet your bank branches of 50 years ago were smaller, then they got bigger, now we're getting smaller. Is that a fair way to put it? I think it's a fair, Spencer, a way to put it. I think the interesting thing, I was listening to recently a, a podcast on NPR, and I, I don't know the author of the podcast, and the, but the research was showing that you get to a point where after three or four choices, that's all you really need. If you go into a supermarket and there's 18 different types of ketchup, you almost walk away because you can't make that decision. Your mind can't distinguish between 18 different types of ketchup, as an example. When it gets to small, we found that when we walked into a traditional branch, and here's the kicker, all the back office and the offices was really taking up majority of the branch. And if you think about a customer would come in, walk up to the teller line, they were only in about 300 square feet of space, although we had all this other space for people in offices and other back office things. So what we said is let's open it up, let's make it smaller, what do we really need to do in it, and let's give variety and choice. And I think that has paid off dramatically. Now, there's a real estate side to that also. If you build a 5,000-square-foot branch, you put it on two acres of property. If you build a 1,900, you put it on 0.87 an acre. So there's a financial piece to this, too, and positioning. Um, So that's both small. But smaller, you know, we've gone there. Todd, let's come back to you for a moment. So we're talking now about smaller. 
Is that something that our other clients are talking about too? Not just because it's a better design, but also for cost savings. Yeah, we've done a lot of cost consultancy and and compared just retail in general, but specifically for banks. And as they're looking at that footprint, one of the greatest ways to save on your real estate cost, both your actual construction cost, but also just that actual operating cost and cost to buy is by reducing actually in quantity the amount that you're doing. Something else we haven't covered today, too, is just the changing nature of electronic banking and the impact that that has and on drive-throughs, as an example. For those who have done any banking in Texas, there could be 10, 15 drive-throughs in a Texas bank back in the day. And with electronic banking and some of the changes therein, we don't have to build as many drive-throughs. And that's probably a part of the changes that we're seeing now, too. So I think it is about rationalizing the space and pulling out the essential elements. Um, And I think it's about creating that experience that is much closer to the customer. With other clients, one of the things that we were learning is we want to get our people from behind a wall. So when you walk into the lobby, there's not necessarily a barrier any longer, but it's, it's literally somebody with a tablet saying, what, how can I help you today? And even to your education point, how can I show you how to do this electronically um, just as you're coming in here for me to help you do this? You also can do a lot of this yourself. And customers, I think, appreciate that more and more as well. There's another critical component to that openness, which is it's a huge deterrent to bad actors. So if you come into the bank branch with nefarious intent and our people are moving about the branch and the moment you walk in the door, you're greeted with a friendly face and you're welcomed, you are no longer anonymous. Immediately. We have had people with what we assume is is nefarious intent walk in, be greeted, and walk back out and leave. And so the security... You would think, it's a little counterintuitive, you would think that the openness would give you a higher risk, and it doesn't. It's the opposite. Let's talk about drive-throughs. What is the math, the logic, more, less? How do you assess your customers on, are we going to have more drive-throughs versus less? Well, I'll start out. I think drive-throughs became, Spencer, extremely valuable two years ago. Because the branches, they depended on them. And our branches that had drive-throughs were just critical. Mm -hmm. We have had a hard time in some jurisdictions about getting drive-throughs. They don't want the drive-through, they don't want the backup. But in the pandemic, it absolutely saved us in the case because people didn't want to get out of their car, the convenience of it. They wanted to be able to go through. So we actually statistically, working with a retail team, uh, those branches perform better with Mm drive-throughs. They absolutely do. There's been a conversation in recent years about is the bank branch going away? Our research shows that the answer is no, that even if I'll say 98% of the time I'm banking on my ubiquitous rectangle that we call a phone, I still want a place that I can go to see a human being if I need to. So the branch is not dead. Todd is absolutely right, and Thomas as well, that we're building fewer drive throughs But in the places where for some reason we can't have one, it gets noticed and we get customer feedback almost immediately. Like, well, you don't have a drive-through here. There's a convenience factor. Um, Sometimes they're coming in, but what we find too is a lot of times people are coming in for other things. They need consultation. They need 
advice. They need notary service. They need, I mean, any number of other things that we can do um, at the bank. They need education. They're, they need to learn something. And so there's a real consultative depth to the work that our teams do in the branch environment. Um, but if somebody's coming for a quick transaction, the drive through is often what they default to. So let's wrap up this portion of the conversation on real estate. Then we're going to make uh, wellness the star of the show. Thomas, you've been doing this for a very long time, and we've been trying to get the wellness thing right. I would love to know through your years of experience what's worked and what might not work. It's interesting. We had this conversation about the pandemic, and one of the things our CEO, Tim uh, Spence, was talking about, I was talking to him, and I said to him, he said, how do we get people back to work? And I said, you get people back to work by taking away the excuses of why they wouldn't come back. So can they get their dry cleaning done? Yes, they can. We talked about concierge earlier, and we can uh, talk about that. We talked about parking. Can we offer discounted parking? We do that. So we took away that excuse. Uh, We're talking about fitness center. Can we take that away from it? Can we put a fitness center in? It's not one amenity. It's multiple amenities. How can we make our workplace similar to a home that you can work in the kitchen, you work in the den, you can work outside? So from a real estate perspective, how do we prepare the workplace to have multiple places? Places to work. We've done some benchmarking recently around gyms in particular. Yes. Mm-hmm. And corporate gyms that are successful serve about 10% of the population when you do the numbers. So if you've got 1,000 people on a campus and you're building a gym for 500 people, it's probably never going to feel full. If you build it for about 10, 12% of the population, that's about the number of people that are going to rotate through on a given day and are going to use it regularly. The other thing I would share is not only is it dollars in your paycheck if you do certain things for wellness, not only is it giving you tools to understand where your fitness is, but it's pretty gamified. So it's app-based and parts of it are, and you get points and those points equate to dollars that you can spend in the shop and it's for good stuff. I'm saving right now for a bonfire for my patio. And it's like 50,000 points and I'm halfway there. So the, the gamification of it is very engaging. Last year, I think I used all my points and I cashed them in for gift cards and all of my stocking stuffers for my kiddo were purchased through all the exercise I did all year long. And it's funny, I talked to some friends about this over the weekend and they're like, Fifth Third pays you to be healthy? I'm like, yeah. They, what do they pay you? And I went through the program and paid me $1,800 to wear this watch and be healthy. And they're like... They pay you to be healthy. They kept saying that. I said, yeah, so it's interesting. I think one of the best points of view that came out of all the workplace research over the last couple of years is that all of the places you work are part of an ecosystem. It's not one place or two places or a third place. Work is a thing that you do, and you do it within an ecosystem of spaces and places. There's also a psychological wellness. You, most people want to belong to something. Mm-hmm. They want to feel part of something. Mm-hmm. And it's very hard to feel a part of something when you're at a distance. We talk about culture, how important culture is. Culture is important because we want people to feel like they belong to something. And I think that makes them more productive. So um, that's how we look at it. So much of wellness is in the mind. And I don't say that in the negative way of like, well, it's all in your head. It's not that. (laughs) It's about the things that you're thinking about. It's the things that are weighing on your mind. And I think that one of the primary opportunities we have is not a space opportunity. It's a leadership opportunity. Leaders supporting people, they become a big lever for wellness. So 
If I know that, if I say to Thomas, hey, I, I've got to scoot because I need to go pick up my kiddo and I'll be back online and you can call me in the car. Or what? And, he, and he's like, well, of course, go do it. And I know that there's not a ramification for that. It's not going to come back and bite me later. The, the anxiety that I don't carry uh, is not insignificant. That's a big deal. And it's a huge contributor to not only balance and flexibility, but it's a big contributor to wellness. When people are worried that just doing life is going to get them in yeah. trouble or, or limit their career, the stress and anxiousness that that creates is really detrimental. I also just kind of thinking about kind of um, stress and being at work. I think people as they're coming into the office, they're now getting that buffer on their commute home Mm -hmm. that they didn't have before. And sometimes I think maybe a separation of it not feeling the same lets you relax a little bit as opposed to your home and your workplace feeling identical. It's an interesting concept for sure, but you're starting to hear that, that, you know, just wind down time in rush hour traffic sounds weird, but just want, you know. The value of that separation. That, that separation gives you a time to just take a deep breath in. Yeah. I think one of the things we heard during the pandemic is there was There's no, no separation. separation. I think yeah. people, people tended to work more and they couldn't shut it down and you just kept working and you couldn't stop and there wasn't a breaking point and there wasn't, and it's interesting about interruptions. Because they knew you couldn't go anywhere, so right. you were at home right. and you were available. I mean, there is a fatigue of being on eight Zoom calls mm-hmm. in a yes. row. Yes. Or Zoom calls all day. That's fatigue. That's mentally burned out of being on a call after call after call after call. I believe the separation is important. Maybe I'm old school. I think the separation, and I can go home and I can f- focus on my family and not worry about that next email I got to get. And I can know I'm leaving work and I'm coming back. Doesn't mean I don't sign on at night late, but I've got a separation mm-hmm. and I'm not doing it. When I was working from home, the limited time that I did, I felt like the day just never ended. In fact, you know what the comment was, Spencer? It says, life is like a series of Wednesdays. Every day was a Wednesday. There was no difference. <laughs> because you were working. It wouldn't be okay. If you're on the same environment every day doing the same thing, you it's a no series of same days. Every day is a Wednesday. I love Every day is a Wednesday. Yeah. That's what we used to say. It was interesting. The there, there was this brief moment where people said, oh, this is great. I yes. don't have the commute. Yes. And it very quickly turned into, oh, my God, I don't have the commute. Like, <laughs> it just means I roll out of bed and I work. And yeah. I work until I can't work anymore. And then I think about, should the workplace be like home? There are parallels that are really important that speak to engagement. So should we replicate home? Not necessarily. But if you think about what's on your walls at home, it's probably pictures of your family. It's probably pictures of your favorite places, the places you vacation together. These are artifacts that are indicative of your family culture, the things that are important to you. We have artifacts here that are indicative of our corporate culture. They're very engaging. The graphic activation in our spaces is one of the ways that we engage team members. And engaged team members are the engine of a successful organization. And so I think there are parallels that are pretty important um, to incorporate into the workplace. That doesn't mean that it has to replicate home. So uh, we only have a few minutes left. So I'm going to cover a couple topics in a little bit of a rapid fire fashion, if you don't mind. So we've had several episodes on different aspects of wellness, including air quality and water quality. 
And so we had two authors from Harvard, Joe Allen and John McCummer, wrote the book uh, Healthy Buildings, talking about how having a healthy building not only makes you happier, but actually improves your cognitive ability. How much does that go into your thinking? So we have a gentleman in our property management group who leads the charge for mechanicals right down to the particulates in the air that we breathe in our spaces. He is very good at it. He is a a great partner. And in fact, when we wanted to start to use scent activation in our spaces, we reached out to him and said, how do we do this? And his immediate response was, you know what? I need to do a study to see what that's going to do to particulates in the air. So IAQ, indoor air quality, is very important to us. Uh, We have somebody that is paying attention to that for us on a regular basis, on an ongoing basis. And multi-sensory activation is important to us as well. Isn't it true, this is not like a a, uh, cross-examination, but isn't it true that Fifth Third has a proprietary scent that you have in your bank branches? That is true. That is correct, sir. uh, It smells like success. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Or or, or to quote Apocalypse Now, smells like victory. Um, But but what what does it smell like? So so in our atrium, part of the goal of our atrium space has to do with understanding our geographic location and proximity to our community. Part of where we are geographically is on Fountain Square. Fountain Square has ah, a fountain on it, and that's a water element. And so we have created a digital water element in our atrium, and we have what smells like fresh water, smells like the air after it rains when you walk into our atrium. In the branches, there is a blend of scents that is intended, if if any of the listeners know anything about aromatherapy, this will resonate, but a, a blend of scents that tend to engender trust and openness. Um, And so it is a unique blend that is specifically crafted for Fifth Third to achieve that idea that we we want to empower customers and enable them to reach their goals. And we want a deep, trusting relationship with with our team. So I have to to add to that. Um, When we talked about scent, we had not done scent before until just about three or four years ago. And um, I've got this idea, Valerie and I talked about it, we kind of pushed this with the organization. I was at the Napa Valley Inn in Napa Valley. I don't know if anybody's ever been to the Napa Valley Inn, but, but it's beautiful. And we were out there about five years ago, and my wife and I walked in, and the scent in that hotel was so good. I mean, I'm like, this woke me up. And the sound, along with it, it was like calming. And it was so great. I came back. I remember having a conversation with you. And I said, we have to, with the atrium and with our branches, have to experiment with how do we track all the senses, whether it be smell um, or it be sound. And so we have music in our branches as well. We have music in our branches, and we also have scent in our branches that we're experimenting with. And we also have it in the atrium. And it gives a certain vibe. It gives a certain feeling. But the scent and the sound is important. Well, we're just about out of time here, but I will just go around the table lightning round style. Any final thoughts on the topic of wellness and real estate? And maybe, Todd, your final thoughts. Well, my final thought is how awesome is it that we're having this conversation where we're talking about issues that bring out the best versions of our most important resources? Then who would have thought 15 years ago when we were talking about bricks and sticks that today we're talking about all the things that we're talking about today and how important that is to um, our most important resources. So um, I'm excited about where we've come in just a few years, and I'm really even more excited about where we head in the future with this 
And so I thank you for uh, including me as part of this. Thomas, final thoughts on wellness and real estate. I'll say what I said before. I think if we can create an environment where people enjoy working and they do their best work of their career while they're here, that's what we're trying to do. Valerie, final thoughts on wellness and the workplace. I'll go back to leadership and just say, if you are a leader in your organization, your contribution to the wellness of the people that report to you is not insignificant and you need to take it seriously. You are a tremendous lever for the way that they experience corporate culture. You have the power to create a really positive microculture within that. And you have a tremendous ability to affect the mental wellness of the people that work on your team. And so I think the, the leadership opportunity that we face right now in 2022, going into 2023 very soon, is significant and powerful. And if we do it well, nothing but good things on the horizon. Great. And then uh, as our resident wellness expert, Maureen, the final thought. My final thought is I learned a lot about real estate today. I spend a lot of time with Thomas on various things, but I learned a lot about real estate and maybe how we might partner in new and different ways than what we were already doing. So it was exciting and very cool. See that? Our new favorite word. On behalf of The Weekly Take, I want to thank our friends from Fifth Third Bank for talking to us, starting with Thomas Neltner, the head of Enterprise Work Services, Fifth Third Bank. Thomas, thank you. Thank you, Spencer. Maureen Ballant, Senior Vice President and Director of Benefits, Fifth Third Bank. Thank you, Maureen. Thank you, Spencer and team. Thank you. Todd Pardon, Managing Director, CBRE. Todd, well done. Enjoyed it. Thank you. And last but certainly not least, Valerie Garrett, Director of Workplace Design, Fifth Third Bank. Thank you, Valerie. Thank you so much, sir. It's been a pleasure. For more on Fifth Third Bank and the topics we discussed, There's a vault of additional information and content on the CBRE website. The Weekly Takes homepage features more about our guests and the show. That's CBRE.com slash The Weekly Take. And hot off the presses, you will find wider perspectives on workplace trends, multifamily trends, and retail trends in a new global piece from CBRE Research called The Live Work Shop Report. It's available at cbre.com slash global report. So feel free to check out all of that, share the program, and remember to subscribe, rate, and review us wherever you listen. Thanks for joining us. We'll be back next week with more real estate stories and business insights. I'm Spencer Levy. Be smart, be safe, be well.